Sebas Panos from Amsterdam. So why would you want to self-destruct? I'm so happy that there are a few people left here. Last session, last paper. So thank you so much. There must be a god who tries to protect me. <laughs> I must say that if you have read uh, the introduction to my paper, it's not that I want to disagree here with Sanders. It's that E.B. Sanders has uh, given me the material to think about how we sort of deal with proposals that do not fit within our accepted way of getting to a chronology of, um, of Jesus. So my purpose here is to uh, de deconstruct the chronology of Jesus and do that uh, on the basis of Nikos Kokinas' crazy, ludicrous proposal that Jesus was crucified in 36. We all know that is not true. That was in 1989, but Nikos is not a New Testament scholar. Um, so who paid attention? Well, one man did, and that was E.P. Sanders, and he sort of spent five pages of an annex and two pages of notes in um, uh, 1993 in his, uh, the historical figure of Jesus to show that uh, uh, that Kokinos was wrong. And interestingly, he did not do that because uh, he thought he could argue a date on the basis of the Gospels, but because he thought that Kokinos misread Josephus. Well, that's interesting. What did uh, Kokinos say? He said, well, basically, if I combine the Gospels and Book 18 of Josephus' Jewish Antiquities, then I see the following scenario. And his purpose was to reconstruct Herodian history. He says when Philip the Tetrarch died in 33-34, his wife, Herodias, remarried Philip's brother Antipas, perhaps in a move for claim for territory. John the Baptist opposed the marriage and was executed thereafter, so say 35. Meanwhile, Antipas first wife fled to her father Aretas, the king of the Nabataeans, and he then used this as a pretext to declare war on Antipas. He defeated Antipas in 36, and the people believed that God had thus punished Antipas for the execution of John the Baptist. If someone doesn't have a handout, please, uh, I think that there are still at the, uh, at the back. In the um, first page of my handout, you can see how uh, Sanders proves that Kokinos is absolutely out of his mind. He, he puts all the events of Book 18 in a row. So you can see Antiquities 18, he has a number of events, including the crucifixion of Jesus and the execution of John the Baptist. And then for those events that we have a pretty secure date, he puts the date in there. And you can see Pilate being appointed in 26, and Josephus talking about the death of Germanicus in 19, then the crucifixion of Jesus, then scandals are in Rome, also in 19. Then Pilate is dismissed, arrives in Rome, and Tiberius dies in 37. All of a sudden, Tiberius is alive again, and he sends a, a letter to Vitellius, 
to do something uh, uh, about Aretas. Philip dies, and then Antipas agrees to marry Herodias, and then John the Baptist is uh, in sort of a flashback, executed, and then of course Vitellius uh, goes to Aretas. He doesn't. He doesn't want to. He, he hates it. He thinks it's a bad idea because he hates Antipas, and then. Uh, Tiberius dies, and Vitellius says, well, job well done, I'm going back to Antioch and wait what the new emperor will tell me to do. And it seems that Aretas gets Damascus and stuff like that in return, whereas the territories of Philip are awarded to Agrippa. So that's sort of the, the, uh, the thing that is being told here. Now, obviously, if you look at this, then if you want to accept Coquina's theory that the execution of John the Baptist is in its right place, then obviously the crucifixion of Jesus is not. Furthermore, you would conclude that Jesus was crucified before John was executed. So, um, worse even, uh, some would propose that Jesus was crucified in 21, because his story is told between two events of 19, case closed. Nobody challenged, to my mind, Sanders on this, because we all agree with him. It makes sense, huh? We're done. Case closed. But when we look at Josephus, he's actually quite a, a good narrator. If you look at it, you have to ask yourself, why would Josephus talk about all these events of the Jewish people in chronological order, in all his books until 17, stop doing that in book 18, make a mess of it, and then continue in book 19 with a chronological order. Well, one thing is he does seem to have a lot of information about Herod the Great, not so much about the early first century, and then a lot of information about Agrippa, and then moving on, of course, to the Jewish war. So maybe he just didn't know he was messing up. But if you, if you categorize his stories, you will see that he had to split his narrative. In the end of Book 17, when Herod, uh, Herod dies, Augustus splits his territory. Some of it goes to Judea and Samaria under Archelaus and later the Roman governments. Another part goes is Galilee, and yet another part is the Transjordan territories. And because he does so, he is confronted in his narrative style, like he's not making annals, he's telling the story in bits and pieces, in installments. So you get overlapping chronologies. And what I've done for you is, on the next table, I have put, say, Judea 1, Judea 2, then moving to Galilean history 1, Transjordan 1, Judean 3rd, Galilean 2nd, and then all of a sudden Parthian history. If you just look at the Judean ones, you will see that Josephus sticks to chronological order. These are overlapping chronologies. And then when he moves to Parthian history, he starts back at the death of Herod, all the way up to Artabanus becoming king. So in other words, he catches up with a story that is important to him, but it's not part of the main uh, story of uh, the territory of Israel. So what do we see here? We see here a very able writer, not messing up, but giving you an exciting story. He's even a good narrator. What he does is he tells about the different uh, procurators that are coming in, and then says, and then Pilate was appointed, and then he stops. He tells you a few other stories, and then he tells you about the story of Pilate's rule, and then he stops again, 
only to tell the end of Pilate's rule when he resumes. So he sort of makes it, makes it a bit more exciting for people listening to the story. What you also can see is that in this, um, uh, in this way of reading it, Jesus and John are perfectly placed. Jesus is a minor figure in the story of Pilate. So therefore he is discussed when Pilate is discussed. John is a minor figure in the story of Herod Antipas. So John features only in the story of Herod Antipas. So we can't use these arguments. They're simply, uh, I love the word facile, they're too facile to use. So if we know that, the question is, what does Josephus suggest? Well, to be honest, to Kokinos, if you look at the rule of Pilate, Jesus is told, the story of Jesus is told as the last event. And Pilate was indeed the governor from 26 to 36. Now that doesn't tell me anything because I don't know if Josephus really knew his stuff. And I don't know how many years still to come after Jesus' death. But it rather supports Coquinus rather than contradicts him. Um, it's a bit more complicated with John the Baptist because here was really interesting what people are doing. Um, here, Coquinos connects the execution of John to the protesting of the marriage, but that's not in Josephus. That's only in the Gospels. So he uses the Gospel to sort of locate it in Josephus. Even worse, he corrects Josephus. For Josephus says that the daughter of Herodias, Salome, was married to Philip. Though, says Kokinos, the Gospel tells me, Philip was the husband of uh, Herodias. So he sort of corrects Josephus in order to gain understanding. He might be right, right about this, but you can't take this from Josephus. You can only get there once you've combined it with the Gospel. The other way around, we, or Sanders in this case, um, sort of see what's, what's there. We don't believe this stuff. So we look at the Gospel of Mark, read Philip, and says that must have been Herod, because Philip, because Herod was the second husband in uh, Josephus of Herodias. So in other words, we correct it regularly to read Herod Philip, a name nowhere attested in any ancient source. But we do. And then it gets into Wikipedia. So, so, so we've got a beautiful thing. There's also a little bit about um, talking about uh, once we don't agree with someone, um, we actually hit on it a bit harder. So, um, Coquino says, as soon as Areta's daughter had gone to her father, he used it as a pretext for war. That comes from the sentence, she reached her father and told him what Herod planned to do about marriage, and Areta's made this the beginning of hostility over boundaries in the district of Gamala. But Sanders' remarks, made this the beginning of, is not necessarily as soon as. On the contrary, one supposes that some time elapsed between the divorce and the war. One supposes. Why? Well, he's got a note on that. In the note, he says, border disputes typically last for some time before there is direct military action. Yes, 
But in Kokinos' reconstruction, the border dispute is not just a border dispute. It is because Tiberius in 34, 33, 34 decided not to settle the Transjordan's territories. But think about it. He, he was used to do that. Tiberius was this kind of emperor who thought about which governor will I send and what shall I do. Both the Nabataeans and the Herodians had ruled it before. So both would eye the territory. We know that in the end, Aretas ended up with Damascus, some kind of control, some kind of role, and it may very well be that his economic objective was to secure his trade routes. We also know that some parts, of Josephus tells us, that some parts of Philip's army ended up in Antipas's army. So it seemed that he already made moves to incorporate something of the territory. The guys were, were quarreling. And the fact that uh, Antipas broke, say, the marriage contract did give Aretas the pretext to say, well, you started. I've got a case. When the emperor is mad with me, I, I have a case. And in the end, he was vindicated because uh, Caius Caligula did not take action anymore. So if that's all true, um, why then do we get to some other dates, the 30s? It's interesting, I said, that Sanders is uh, not arguing on the basis of the Gospels. He's rather arguing on the basis of um, Paul. First thing he does in his, uh, uh, in his book is he really shreds the idea that you can use astronomy to determine the weekday of the Passover, for many reasons. Um, but anyway, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help him. And also the, the information in the Gospel is so frequently uh, uh, difficult to understand that he says uh, anything more than knowing that it was under Pilate, we can't say. But being a Pauline scholar, he adds that the chronological information in Paul's letters and the book of Acts works best if we date Jesus' death very late in the 20s or early in the 13s CE. So that's his reason in the end. I found it a bit difficult that we have now for, what is it, 20, 30 years decided that we want to read authors in their own right before we move on to constructing images of what happened in the past, that on the basis for the chronology of Jesus, we seldom do that. We seldom read authors in their own right. Um, so I, I added a little table to share with you on the next page um, what we actually have from our various First you have Paul. Paul does not tell us when Jesus was crucified, when the mission was, etc. He says uh, he, was he was crucified as our Passover. Okay, there is the Deuteropoline mention that it was in front of Pilate in Timothy. Um, but more than saying that uh, uh, he, there is some time between his first visit to the Apostles and uh, another visit, is that's all what he's telling us. There's one little bit of information if you just take Paul himself, that is in um, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, where he describes his escape from Damascus when Aretas governor held sway. Now, if this reconstruction is correct, that, that would mean that between 37 and 40, when Aretas dies, this escape could have taken place. And some three years before that, there must have been some kind of experience when Jesus was already crucified. So that's what we have from Paul. 
Mark doesn't give us much more. It just tells John baptized a whole lot of people, baptized Jesus. Um, there was a spring at which 5,000 people were fed in the Passover when Jesus died, tried by Pilate. Matthew doesn't give us much more, except that uh, Caiaphas was there. And he adds that Jesus was born under Herod the Great. Now, Matthew comes across much as a, more as an artist than a historian. He opens with a stylized 3 times 14 list of patriarchs and kings to make Jesus the successor of David. And then he rearranges Mark's stories to portray Jesus as a counterpoint to Moses, giving a sermon on the law on the mount and performing ten wondrous signs. On the basis of reference in the Hebrew Bible, the author then turns Herod to be the pharaoh who slaughters the innocent and then calls Jesus out of Egypt to save his people. That's it. You, John, let's go to John first. John doesn't tell us anything. But what he tells us is interesting. He says uh, um, there is a longer type of mission. There is some time of overlap between, uh, between John the Baptist and Jesus. Um, apart from that, there is one guy saying in the Gospel of John that Jesus is not yet 50. Okay, well, whatever you want to do with that. <laughs> there is this, 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 this strange remark about 46 years of building the temple that some people... Uh, take as an indicator of time if I tell you, they use that they do that on the basis of Josephus the problem is that they then have to selectively read Josephus and disregard him when he says that the temple was ready then grab on the remark further on that says when the uh, Jewish war was there people who were working on the temple were sent home so you say see they were still working on the temple and I'm disregarding the fact that Josephus tells you that that started under the emperorship of Nero. Okay, so let's not, let's not take those kinds of indicators. Luke is far more interesting. Um, the author claims to be an historian, even though, even though all of us will have recognized that he has his own theology and rhetorical strategy. He, had, he talks about these additional activities before John's arrest. He's got quite a lengthy travel narrative, even with various routes into Jerusalem, although he never allows Jesus to reach Jerusalem. And just like Matthew, he creates a birth narrative, but this time through writing two parallel stories about John and Jesus. Some say that he took stories about John and then parallelized them to talk about uh, Jesus. He takes care to describe John's birth and the Annunciation of Christ as taking place under the kings of Israel using the word Herod, king of Judea. And he calls all reigning Herods the Herod. So that doesn't help us very much. And Judea could, of course, not uh, be Israel, but just Judea, and therefore refer to Archelaus. But, of course, reading first Matthew and then Luke, we would conclude it is Herod the Great. Why not? That's something you wouldn't forget, would you? The problem is, of course, that he then proceeds with putting Jesus' birth very precisely under Quirinius. That's a bit odd, because he's pretty good with governance. And mostly we just conclude he was wrong and he messed up his sources, and that's also what Sanders writes. And then he gives us a lot of extra information, which is really helpful. And then says that Jesus is about 30 years old. Now what we mostly do when we construct a, a, a chronology of Jesus, we take the, the birth of Jesus on the head of the grade and then add, and that's from Matthew. For Luke, we have to decide 
which reference is right or how we interpret the first reference. And then we add Luke's age to it. Say, see, he must have been born quite early. But that's unfair because maybe Luke just calculated the age of Jesus, saying, well, born under Quirinius, died somewhere in the mid-30s, he was about getting to be somewhat around 30, which is nice because Joseph was 30, David was 30, I like, I like the number 30. Oh, that's the way that he could have done this. So, in other words, um, did Luke really make a mistake with Quirinius? Fairly overlooked are two verses, I've put them in the table, from Acts that suggest that that Luke may have known what he was doing. It's, it's almost frightening. Luke actually may have known when Quirinius reigned. Of course, Quirinius minted coins. They were around. Um, but there's an extra reference in Acts where uh, he talks about Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. So he, it's not just that you can say, well, there must have been an earlier date for Quirinius for the census. Or, or anything else. No, he knows something about Judas, the Galilean. And remember that this is written after the fall of Jerusalem, when grandsons of Judas, or Jude, petitioned in the leadership. So the stories about Judas, the Galilean, were alive and kicking in the 70s and 80s CE. And combining those with Quirinius means he probably understood that Quirinius came in after uh, Archelaus was disposed. deposed. So you can't simply say, Luke didn't know his business. And then the second point is, how quickly after he introduces John's uh, entry in the 15th year of Tiberius, how quickly was Jesus baptized? Well, he says all of Israel was baptized before Jesus was baptized. Okay, so how much time did John spend doing that? And it's interesting, we want to make it short so we basically read over this and say, well, it just happened. But in Acts 11.24, it says, as John was completing his course, then he started to announce the one coming after him, whom he was not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. So what I've done for you is I've, I've given you a number of options to reconstruct the chronology of Jesus using these base blocks. I've put in the church fathers, always fun, always to show also that they were good, they, they could calculate, it's not, nothing wrong with church fathers. But then they of course would harmonize Josephus to, to understand that Herod the Great died somewhere in the early parts of, of the first century. I've also kicked in the uh, Anno Domini, the, the, the year one. Uh, some people say that uh, our dear uh, Dennis the Dwarf made a mistake. Of course, he did not make a mistake. He was probably more of a mathematician than most of us. Um, what he did is he took uh, John, um, the remark in John that, uh, that the John the Baptist says, uh, my, uh, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease to refer to the equinoxes. So Jesus, of course, uh, was um, uh, was. Uh, from the, uh, the equinox that the, the days were lengthening and, then, um, and, and, and John the Baptist um, when they were shortening. So that, that for, for him that was perfectly logical to take a symbolic value. And you remember he was, he was restricted to using the church tables which he calculated backwards. 
And he knew that that was not the way that the Jews were calculating it. But he didn't care. He just wanted to tell you what the symbolically best date was to start the year of the Lord. And he gets to something that is quite close to what Jerome was saying, so that's fine. Then our modern consensus readings, well, whatever you want, you can use astronomy to say, let's choose between 30 and 33. And in order to do that then, you can first harmonize the birth of Jesus, and, uh, of Jesus between Luke and Matthew, and then you sort of uh, apply Luke 3 verse 1, and then you start, very simple, building all your interpretations on the basis of that. Same goes to get to 30. How different is Coquinas? Not that much. And, and if, we, if we look at all our sources, there are only two that suggest something about the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. That is Josephus placing Jesus at the end of the events of Pilate in Judea. And Luke claiming that Jesus was born under Quirinius. Now I'm not saying that he is correct or that this interpretation of Luke is correct. I mean, all of this is highly symbolical. But it is at least as valid as any of our current reconstructions. So my conclusion is we should, when we do this stuff, um, we should be careful to use data from different sources too early. We should first interpret the authors in their own right and allow them for artistic license, rhetorical strategy, and even some simple mistakes. Is this of any importance? Sander says that the dating of the mission and crucifixion does not really matter for our understanding of the life of Jesus as long as we place his death during the period when Paul was, Pilate was prefect. That may be largely true in terms of categorizing Jesus. What kind of guy was he? But I think there are at least three points where the work of Coquinos may influence our understanding. First, a longer mission for both John the Baptist and for Jesus as his disciple might stimulate us to evaluate the memories regarding him more in terms of developments in response to evolving circumstances than we do now. We now try to find a sort of stable Jesus. Second, the political context and actual threat of war would have elevated the importance and sensitivity of John and Jesus for Herod Antipas. They may have been more important to him than we previously thought. And this may in turn shed light on the role of the Herodians in the Gospel of Mark. Third, understanding Pilate after the demise of his protector Sejanus in 31 CE, and in the midst of a charge against him from Samaritans, would help us to appreciate his careful operating in the Gospel accounts during the trial of Jesus, which would otherwise seem far too elaborate to be plausible. And finally, there may be a few Gospel passages, notably in Luke, that could merit evaluation in light of the proposed dates and context described by Josephus. These passages would then show a Jesus who is actively engaged with the political tensions of his day. That might be inspiring to some of, uh, of us. Uh, just yesterday said in the Trump uh, election uh, aftermath meeting, uh, and it was lovely, and, and suppose that Jesus would actually have comments to make on the politics of his day. For example, Luke 14, verse 31, or what king going out to war to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. Thank you.
Thank you very much. <laughs> 